Hello, welcome to Vet Talk, the veterinary podcast. I'm Dr. Nathan. Thanks for listening. This is an informational podcast, and we hope you find it a valuable tool to help you understand veterinary medicine and how to better care for your animals. If you want to contact us, please reach out to theveterinarypodcast at gmail.com. You can find a complete list of the podcast episodes on SoundCloud or by going to lickingvalleyvet.com and finding the education page. While you are there, take a look at our blog section for more helpful information. You can also follow Licking Valley Veterinary Hospital's Facebook page if you want regular updates on released podcasts, blogs, and videos. If you find this information helpful, please feel free to make a donation to the continuation of this content. There is a link to do this on the webpage under the podcast list. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope this information is helpful to you. We're going to talk about percents today. My goal is anyone listening will gain a greater understanding of how we apply science with reality in veterinary medicine. Because reality does have a fun twist on how the numbers actually play out. What I mean is life is a gamble because with each decision we make there is a percent chance of things happening but only one thing will actually happen. When I made it to the application point of vet school I had a 33% chance I would get in. Roughly 100 people were applying and Auburn only accepted 30 people from Kentucky. For every three people applying, I had to beat two of them to get my placement. I remember sitting in the dorm room working out the percent likelihood I would get in, factoring in so many unknowns like how my interview went and what was going on with everyone else's grades. In the end, I was accepted, but 66% of people applying were not accepted. There was a chance that each of them could have gotten in. In reality, that did not happen. The 100 that applied each had a chance and all worked hard, but only one-third of them got into vet school. That's how reality comes in. A great leader will once say, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not weakness, that is life. 66% of people applying to vet school didn't get in. Not because they didn't do things correctly, but because they just got beaten. Another example, I could go on a date or out to dinner with Amelia Clark. There is a percent chance that would occur. For example, we both exist at the same point in time. I have a 0% chance of dating Cleopatra of ancient Egypt. Amelia Clark, however, I have a chance. We live on the same planet. She knows roughly where I live, as apparently she was filming a movie, Above Suspicion, in a county near me and didn't bother to stop in and say hi. Hmm, looks like that movie is out. I'm going to have to watch it. I don't get much time to watch movies with my job, so unless it's a Star Wars movie, I rarely make the time. Oh, Amelia, you vixen. You knew that, so you got in a solo story just so I'd be able to see you. So yes, it is possible Amelia and I could even cross paths, and she would immediately recognize how awesome it would be to hang out with me and totally not think about getting a restraining order. Now, there are a few things that make the percent chance of that happening very small, probably infinitesimal. 
one, our paths probably won't cross. Two, in person, without a script, I would probably just act like any other starstruck person and be in awe and forget my own name when talking to her. So I would probably mess it up, ruining any percent chance that she would take notice. Three, my girlfriend would probably say that she doesn't want me to date Amelia Clark. However, I did discuss having Amelia out to dinner with us, and my girlfriend is quite fine with that. So in case you are listening, Amelia, there is still hope for us to hang out. So yeah, thinking about this, the students that didn't get into vet school didn't necessarily make a mistake. They had a chance of getting in. They didn't. Me being tongue-tied meeting Amelia Clark would cause mistakes to happen. I still have a chance, or a percentage of a chance, that she would see through that and realize I'm a cool guy. But I would likely mess it up and lower that chance because of actions I took. That being said, America, we really need to work on making America great again. Like, let's make it so Europeans like Amelia Clark can safely travel to America without the extreme risk of being infected by COVID-19. And percents come back into play here. We can do everything right and still have infections by COVID-19. Or we can do everything wrong and have even worse infection rates with COVID-19. COVID-19 is here. It's not going away. And it's not going to kill the human race. But we still need to prevent it. We were never really worried about COVID killing the entire race. We are worried about the percent that COVID-19 will kill and the devastation it leaves to lives and the economy in its wake. We are worried that when a certain percent of hospital beds are full from normal disease and then extra full from COVID-19 victims that we will lose a greater percentage of people than we should. We are worried that businesses won't be able to support and thrive in this age of COVID and the industry that keeps us functioning will begin to collapse. I mean, yeah, people have died and will die from this disease. Businesses will go under. That was going to happen during the age of COVID. We all knew that. When we don't take it seriously, then more people than should will die. More businesses will collapse the longer this goes. More people have died than should have died. Come on, America. Where's our can-do attitude? Whereas we're the best country out there. If you wear a mask in France, we're going to wear a full hazmat suit. I think foreigners like our all-in attitude, not our stubbornness. And yeah, everyone doesn't need to wear a full hazmat suit 24-7. Our bodies have a lot of basic defenses for disease. First, our bodies are amazing at fighting off disease and preventing disease from getting in the body. We have skin. If COVID gets on my knee, I'm not worried about getting the disease. If it gets past the skin, I still have an immune system to fight it off. Then, if I need, a doctor can get me medications to help me through COVID. If it gets worse, as long as we have enough hospital beds, I have even more intense stuff to help me survive. So why do we keep pushing social distancing and staying at home and wearing masks with all these wonderful things to help us? As you can see, here in America, the normal stuff, such as our bodily defenses, aren't working. Cases are rising. There is a certain percentage of people that are not going to be able to fight off COVID. It's not a minor cold for everyone. And all these things that the CDC and doctors are recommending to do, 
That is just to decrease that chance that you will get sick and be one of those whom doctors cannot save. Or get sick and be one of those that doesn't have a hospital bed when you need one. About 1% of Americans are infected with COVID-19 at the time I'm writing this. We have about 107,000 ICU beds available for critical patients in the U.S. 3.5 million people are infected and 4% of those infected or 138,000 have died. How many would that be if we were not trying to reduce the spread of COVID-19? How high would that percent be? What percent would you be in? The infected or uninfected? If you were infected, which percent would you be? The surviving or the dead? And we are all tough. We can handle it, right? But could your mother or grandmother Remember, if your grandmother needs an ICU bed, an open ICU bed in Montana does not help your grandmother living in Florida. In reality, how do we deal with this? Well, let's jump to some things we deal with in veterinary medicine that may help us wrap our heads around how to deal with COVID-19. Bacteria. I play the percentage game every day and most commonly discuss it with my vet students when talking about bacteria and surgeries. When I do surgery, I want a sterile field where there are no bacteria around while I'm performing surgery. That way, I do not allow the bacteria to get in the body to cause an infection. I want to do more good than harm when I complete a procedure. If I introduce an infection, I have done more harm. I always tell students, sterility is a percent. It's hard to get 100% sterility on a surgical site. So the goal is to take steps to get as close as possible to 100%. Or my outdoor vet take on that is get the percent sterility that keeps bad bacteria from hurting an animal. I know I won't get 100% sterility in most of my situations. So I try to get what is effective. I use my environment, different sanitary and sterilization procedures, antibiotics, and common sense to achieve this goal. In vet school, I remember equine surgery. We had our clean surgical scrubs on. Then we scrubbed our hands and arms and then covered with a sterile gown and sterile gloves and then went into the surgery room, which had positive air pressure in it, which pushed bacteria that were in the air of the room out of the room. This room was typically blocked from the outside world by multiple doors and meticulously scrubbed between surgical cases with disinfectant. Oh, I forgot, we had our caps and masks on to keep our hair from getting anywhere it shouldn't and booties on so we couldn't track dirt in on our feet. There were also these red lines and tape on the floor. If you weren't in surgical gear, you didn't pass the red lines. The animals had boots over its feet when it was rolled into surgery, was clipped and scrubbed at the surgical site and then completely draped with sterile drape and surgery commenced with sterile instruments. All these steps were to decrease the chance that bacteria would make it to the site where surgery was being completed. Each step added that much more level of protection or percent that bacteria would be stopped from getting where they could do harm. After one surgery, my friend and I were exhausted and we walked out of surgery and pulled off our cap and mask as we walked about 20 feet away from the surgery door. I stopped for a brief second to pick up something and then turned the corner. I heard and saw and should have reacted. My friend had walked ahead. The surgeon was yelling at my friend. 
We had not crossed the red tape. We still needed to be in surgical gear. I was next. Even though the surgeon just had more of an exhausted look on his face by the time he got to me. Was the surgeon right to yell? Hell yeah. We were learning and needed to learn to be vigilant about our actions and situations when lives were in the balance. Were we actually causing a problem that would infect a patient? No. We were over 20 feet and a closed door away from the surgery room, which, as we were getting a dressing down, was being scrubbed down. Small animal surgeries were set up much the same way. Let's compare that to one of my first practices I went out to when I was in the real world. There was no red lines and tape. No one wore masks. The surgery room was probably 10 by 12 feet. The animal was clipped, scrubbed three times, and the surgeon and assistant wore sterile gloves. But what else was there? Not much. No one wore caps or booties. And typically, the 10 by 12 room had the surgeon and assistant plus four or five other people watching the surgery. The room was mopped once a day, and I doubt there was any positive air pressure in the room. So yeah, that proved it. Every case that came through the practice was back with post-op infections. Wait, no, they weren't. But what's the deal? How can both ways of surgery be acceptable? How can both the perfect way of surgery and the real-world way have cases that don't get infected with bacteria, causing lots of post-op problems? Well, again, it's about percent sterility. We go to vet school so we learn what corners we can cut and what risk we are taking in the real world when we cut corners. I know how sterile it could be, and I know that each precaution taken will help prevent a certain amount of disease. Each animal has a unique percent for them that they would take to get infected with bacteria. In private practice, I can't do every step they do in the ivory tower of vet school because of time constraints and what clients are willing to pay for a procedure. So I am constantly gambling that the procedures I do to prevent bacterial infection will be enough. But I know which steps are crucial to take to make sure patients are kept healthy. I'm trained to know where problems will occur and how many steps can be removed in each situation before infection becomes a problem. Are there infections in the real world and vet school? Yes, both have them. Both real world and ivory tower of vet school can do everything right and still fail. But as vets, we are trained professionals making sure we don't get infections and have been dealing with bacteria for a long time so we understand how they infect things and how we can prevent them. Is it wrong to do things differently than the ivory tower? Because we all want the best for our pets, right? It's not wrong at all. You can go to places that work even more stringent than vet schools. But more than likely, most of you go to a clinic like the one I described, and you have seen happy and healthy pets for years. What's going on here is you have vets that know how to deal with bacteria and make decisions on how to perform a procedure, making sure the percents are in your animal's favor for not getting an infection. Vets like having multiple fail-safes when we do a procedure. So if things go wrong with the first fail-safe, the backups will make sure our patient is safe. When I was in ambulatory-only practice, I would complete canine neuters on the tailgate of my truck. We can talk about the anesthesia risk in another episode, but what infection risk did I have? 
I sedated, clipped the dog, scrubbed the dog, most of which were farm dogs that lived in the mud anyway, being very exposed and growing immunity to a lot of pathogens. Um, and then I completed the procedure with gloves and sterile instruments. I can't remember any more cases having infection problems than occurred in hospital. Which, knock on wood, thankfully has always been small for me. Was I lucky? Maybe. But I was operating with my knowledge as a trained doctor to complete a procedure safely. I knew the open air with sunlight may have less bacteria in it than most old country clinics that only change their air filters once a year. Sunlight itself would help kill some bacteria. I knew the immune systems of these farm dogs would be strong having been exposed to many of the bacteria that could potentially infect them. The closer to the surgical site, the more sterile things got. The dog may have been a muddy mess, but I clipped away the muddy hair and then completed my scrub, which was at a minimum three scrubs of chlorhexidine followed by alcohol. On a clean surface, if the chlorhexidine can get to the skin of an animal, it will kill about 100% of bacterial organisms in 20 to 30 seconds. The same for the alcohol. The suture was opened and kept on a clean area. The instruments were sterile. And I have done that procedure many times. So was I doing it like they do in vet school? No, but I made judgments with the knowledge I have learned from vet school and completed a procedure which had enough percent sterility that I did not have post-op infections any more than any other clinic completing the surgery. Now clients invariably ask, well, well doc, will you spay my dog on the tailgate? Taking away the anesthesia part from the equation, I still said an emphatic no. Things got crazy with a neuter, and sometimes dirt gets where I did not want it to be. Of course, outdoor vet. Practicing in the field never goes 100% right, and clients should expect more variability, i.e. problems, the further away from a controlled situation. But my clients that wanted their farm dog, that never left the farm, neutered, were aware of those risks. I put my foot down on spays because I knew, even if my clients didn't, I had to keep a spay cleaner than an incision for a neuter because a spay opened up a body cavity. Much easier to get a nastier infection there. With neuters, I know some vets that always have a non-glove assistant hold the testicle for them while the vet put on the required ligatures. Oh my gosh, infection will be pouring into the body. Well, no. Bacteria don't travel the speed of light. The assistants held the testicle up and away from the body and never touched with their non-sterile hand a sterile part of the patient that would be returned to the patient. Again, they were trained and knew that the testicle in a neuter is leaving the body, so bacteria on it would not be going back. Is there a small chance bacteria could fall from the hand to the surgery site? Yes. Then you have an immune system to deal with these risks. The surgeon I'm thinking of performed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of neuters in his life. Like he's old, very old, and grumpy. And alas, other than that surgeon being very old and his patients have since died of old age, they have not had problems. I don't do it that way. I just hold it myself with my gloved hand. But it shows that when educated people complete a procedure, they know how to safely complete the procedure and set it up so even if it looks like it isn't sterile, they have enough fail-safe that the animal will not be reaching that percent that they will be infected. 
So I only do spays at my clinic. And yes, I wear masks and use sterile gloves at the clinic. I do for the neuters at the clinic as well. But I don't put a sterile gown on for every neuter. I don't put a sterile gown on for a spay. I would not risk a spay in the field because I know it's harder to keep the proper percent sterility. I'm a doctor. I'm trained to make those decisions. I know without a gown, I can reach the proper percent sterility in my controlled environment of the clinic. I'm trained to see the scenario and see what is appropriate at the time to accomplish the task at hand. Well, Dr. Nathan, we're in the 21st century. Shouldn't we be doing everything more advanced? Yeah, I mean, in past episodes, I tell people we are smarter and should do things differently than our grandfathers did. But that doesn't mean everything has to be forgotten about the past, either. That doesn't mean everything was wrong. And remember, sterile surgery is not that new in the grand scheme of things. Our great-great-grandfathers didn't have much sterile surgery. Our grandfathers had more sterile surgery. We can't forget that we have been doing surgeries for years with certain protocols to achieve a certain percent sterility to prevent infection in patients. Are there ways to improve? Yes. But trust your doctor that he knows when he or she needs to improve. Knock on wood, in 10 years of practicing medicine, I have not lost one patient to a post-op infection introduced from surgery. Have I had to put animals on antibiotics because of post-op infections or done so preventatively? Yeah because reality happens. Failure happens even in the best of circumstances. Accidents happen or situations happen where sterility is compromised. But in general, most of my patients don't receive antibiotics after surgery. And yes, animals in my care have died from bacterial infections. When an animal is bitten and has bacteria in it, especially resistant bacteria, things can go wrong. But that wasn't my sterile field causing a problem. That was something inserted into the body. We have gotten to a point in our world where we are balancing perfectionism and idealism with reality. The reality is every patient, whether human or animal, needs a certain level of care to cure it or keep it healthy, and the reality is vets and doctors are fighting to give you that level of care. All of you. I'm from Kentucky. We don't have a lot of millionaires in the state. Many of my clients are in a lower economic area. I tried to explain to a national company when I bought some equipment from them that their rates were just not fair for that service. Someone in New York could afford it, but the price I had to pass on to my clients called a response from them like this. Well, I can't afford that, Doc. I guess I'll just shoot her to put her out of her misery. I've also heard, you can't get me in today, Doc, and I can't afford anywhere else. Well, sir, I'm already overbooked. I just don't have time in the day. So I'm balancing getting things done quickly and inexpensively so I can see the patients that aren't being seen and still give the care that is needed. I have found I can still do a job as efficiently without the ivory tower procedures of veterinary school and have a quality patient care. That is the world I live in, and I have to adapt to it so I can meet the needs of people I serve while not sacrificing my standard of care. So I'm going to take a little break here, and next time we will continue our conversation by starting to talk about how people interpret these different standards of care and discuss everyone's most talked about vet, Dr. Pohl, and how people perceive the way he practices.
Then we will loop back to how we are handling coronavirus and my ongoing desire to meet Amelia Clark. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Nathan. I hope this information was helpful to you and gives you a little more perspective on the world. If you want to reach out to us, email us at theveterinarypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tell your friends about our podcast and check out LickingValleyVet.com for information on blogs, videos, and the complete list of podcasts in our education section.